It's the episode you've all been waiting for. Finally, we're going to be celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Skylab 3 mission. And to do this, we have a very special guest. Yes, today we're joined by the only surviving member of that crew, pilot Jack Lausma. And we are very excited. We hope you enjoy this episode. Let us know via our social media pages at Space and Things Podcast on Instagram, Threads, and Facebook or via the contact form on our website. And please consider joining us over at patreon.com forward slash space and things. But right now, enjoy episode 156 of the Space and Things podcast. You're listening to the Space and Things podcast with Emily Carney and Dave Giles. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles, and welcome to episode 156 of our podcast. It's another big one. We've got a great interview coming up, so we're going to crack straight on. Uh, let's, let's, let's just do this, Emily, if that's all right with you. That is perfectly fine. Amazing. <laughs> Obviously, Skylab is a huge part of this podcast, and we've done many episodes on it before, but we are currently in the 50th anniversary of Skylab 3, so we wanted to do something extra special, especially as it's also... The final show of our third year of this podcast. So Skylab 3 lifted off on July 28th, 1973, and the mission lasted 59 days, 11 hours, and 9 minutes, which was an endurance record at the time. The commander was Alan Bean, the science pilot was Owen Garriott, and the pilot was Jack Lausma. And today, we're going to talk about this mission with Jack Lausma, the final surviving member of that crew. Lasma was one of 19 astronauts selected in NASA Astronaut Group 5 in April 1966. And he's perhaps most famous for being the astronaut who was Capcom during Apollo 13 at the moment the explosion happened on board the spacecraft. He was the person who responded to the Houston, we've had a problem message. As well as the Skylab mission, he commanded the space shuttle on its third mission before retiring from NASA in October 1983, having clocked a total of 67 days and 11 hours in space. Lausma performed two of the three spacewalks, which took place during the Skylab mission with a total time of 11 hours and one minute in EVA. It's a real pleasure to talk to Jack today, so let's crack on with this interview. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, Ignition sequence start. All ignitions, all ignitions are running. All engines running. We have a liftoff. All right. So let's get started. Uh, first of all, welcome, Jack, and and thank you so much for joining us on Space and Things. It's a big honor. You're one of our favorites. So first, let's talk a bit about your career at NASA before Skylab. Uh, you were on the support crews for Apollos 9, 10, and 13, and even were the Capcom during the famous Houston, we've had a problem communication. So what other things did you do before Skylab that you think that people need to know about? Well, uh, probably not a whole lot. <laughs> I was uh, well, part of the original 19, we called ourselves, because we saw so many of us, <laughs> and we were the fifth group of astronauts, and we joined NASA in 1966. And went through all our preliminaries and so forth of uh, education. And uh, we were assigned uh, roles uh, working on future, future missions. So way we contributed and also learned. First thing I got to do was an appointment to a lunar module on the survey system. And uh, that was going to be a flight that was going to have a separate module that was attached to the GLAD module. 
lots that I've owned. I had the high high resolution cameras in it, some classified ones, but uh, they were right up my alley because I had been doing them prior. So I was assigned to that. It just never got off the ground, and then they decided to cancel it. And then I went into the um, support crews for uh, Skylab, the very original Skylab people who were going to assist in its design. It was uh, not the Skylab we know now. It was just going to be a uh, empty uh, hydrogen tank, which was at launch the, uh, with a command module in the space. And uh, we were going to undock from it, turn around, and take about 39 bolts off and go into this uh, third stage of the mode rocket that had just launched us in the face, space. And so it was hydrogen floating around in there and so forth. We had to make sure there wasn't going to be any leaks and it turned out it was uh, not a good way to go, and so they scuttled it, and they went into the development of the Skylab as we finally knew it was a um, special Skylab tank configured something for those three missions. I was assigned uh, then to a different job, a real support for Apollo 9, and my job was to make sure that the loader module that only flown on Apollo 9 uh, passed our, all of its tests down at the Cape. Yeah, so I spent about job. a year, uh, most of it at the Cape, going through tests and checkout of that uh, first Apollo uh, lunar module three, the first lunar module to fly in space, and uh, it was uh, flown successfully in orbit about the Earth. And uh, the crew was uh, was McDivitt and uh, Schweikert and somebody else, and it was very successful. Uh, Earth orbital test of the lunar module, not lunar module three. So that was a shuffle over to lunar module four, which was going to be the first lunar module to orbit the moon. And that was going to be with Apollo 10. That was Stafford and Cernan and someone else. I worked on that for um, nearly a year down at the Cape, going through the tests and checkout ceremonies and so forth with the big uh, crew tests and checkout engineers at the Cape. And uh, finally, it came time to uh, launch it, and it was launched. And I was the uh, one of the capsule communicators. Let's see. Uh, after that, and it was also on a support crew for Apollo thirteen. Come to think of it, and I was one of the capsule communicators. And I happened to be the guy who brought up with bad luck when the news came down. You suddenly got a problem. I got another uh, Apollo type assignment. I was one of the guys. Jerry Carr and I were assigned to uh, the lunar, mo- lunar rover development. Oh, wow. So we spent a lot of our time with General Motors in Santa Barbara. Jerry Kai and I you know, were making sure that if the lunar rover met all its, um, its design requirements and did uh, whatever uh, additions we thought needed to be done. And uh, I was the first guy to drive a lunar rover vehicle, test article. And we did it on Pismo Beach, which is where they raced uh, dune buggies. <laughs> and we made a uh, layout in the sand with craters and all that sort of stuff. We drove the loader out, loader rover, one of the front wheel steering, rear wheel steering, all wheel steering, and one wheel failure, two wheel failures, all through <laughs> these craters and in the sand and so forth, just to make sure it's going to work okay. Shortly after that, I was assigned to. Uh, the uh, Skylab program, and I was assigned to uh, be on the second flight with uh, Alan Bean, 
what been the fourth man of the moon who was our commander and with our scientist who was Owen Garriott. So there were three uh, Skylab flights, one, two, and three months. And uh, these were then the longest duration missions that we had up to date. But that was interesting to work with the uh, people from Marshall. I remember when I was a brand new guy, we had a trip to Marshall Space Flight Center and I met Warner Von Brown. And a very, uh, very cordial and good uh, meeting. And uh, later on, um, he wanted to have astronauts to come and live in Huntsville. So he thought he could persuade him to do that if he built a really large nuclear buoyancy tank. So he built one that was large enough to put uh, most of the Skylab into. So we had to go there from Houston to um, train in it. He figured that if uh, there's enough training down there where they would assign some astronauts just to live in Huntsville. Uh, but uh, and he uh, made that tank, and the first one he made was was a smaller one, uh, and he had some engineers who were going to uh, work with us in that tank, but he said, I will be the first one to go in that tank to make sure it's all right. And so Werner Ron Brown was the first one to go in that little tank, <laughs> and then he built a big one. And uh, we just never got around to moving to Huntsville. We always threw there back and forth around T-38s. But while we were there, he would all up and invite us up to his his uh, office for lunch with maybe two or three of his uh, Pinamodi colleagues. He wanted to talk about Skylab, but we wanted to talk about Pinamodi. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so we had some really interesting conversations, but uh, uh, we worked very well with Werner uh, Ron Brown and uh, our colleagues from Marshall Space Flight Center to design and develop and approved the interior of the Skylab and how it was made and how we were going to work at it. Also working on a bunch of the experiments that were headed up by uh, Marshall Space Flight Center. So that became uh, a center of progress in that regard. All right. That brings us now to Skylab 3. So we're going to fast forward to that, uh, which occurred 50 years ago this summer, which is really hard to believe. Doesn't seem that long ago. So during the 50th uh, anniversary of Skylab 2, we spoke a lot about fixing Skylab after it launched. By the time you got to Skylab, were there things you still had to fix? First Skylab launched with Goddard and Weiss and um, Irwin. Before they went in there, we launched Skylab and it came apart on the way up. They had a meteorite shield on the outside of it to protect it from meteorite uh, strikes. And so the exterior of the um, S4B was different than the one that was actually used for flight. And had this meteorite shield that was uh, attached, we thought, uh, securely to the side for launch. But on the way up, it uh, popped off. It was designed to, uh, when we got into orbit, we would release this meteorite shield and it would uh, extend itself away from the, the hull of the spacecraft by about six inches or so. So that's what a meteorite hit, it would break into little pieces, and before it hit the hull, it would out of energy to uh, damage the Skylab. Well, on the way up, that came off. Took one of the solar panels with it, and uh, the other solar panel was jammed in our, to the side. And so all of this was known before Pete and his crew launched. So they spent about 10 days coming up with fixes for that, and uh, one of them was to put a, a parasol over it, a really lightweight parachute kind of uh, material from uh, Johnson Space Center. I put out a pole and was put in a big long box and hooked up to one of the scientific airlocks on the sunny side. 
and uh, it was uh, then extended out into the space from inside that side, a spring loader to pop out and to cover the skyline. And sure enough, it did. And uh, then they had to pull it down a little bit to uh, secure it. And uh, it did reduce the um, temperature in the in the skyline, but was concerned it was not going to be very uh, permanent because it was kind of flimsy material. So the Skylab, when we got to it, was a uh, one-winged bird with a uh, flimsy parasol cover over it. In fact, we almost blew it off with the thrusters as we uh, went around <laughs> it, so we stopped doing that. <laughs> but before we went, it was determined that that was not going to be a uh, permanent fix. So the you know, Marshall Space Flight Center came up with a, a parallel fix that uh, involved a uh, cover that uh, Owen Gary and I put over the parasol. So uh, on about the you know, 10th day or something like that, if we got the feeling better and so forth, like Zero G wasn't bothering us at all, uh, we did that first spacewalk. Oh, and Gary and I went out and covered the uh, the was Plymouth Navy Johnson Space Center parasol with uh, the fix um, that uh, Marshall had come up with, which was um, to build uh, our two flagpoles. Uh, each one of the two flagpoles are made out of 11 flagpole pieces. So I positioned myself out uh, where I could see the uh, outside of the parasol, and Gary was down by the hatch, and he was putting these poles together. So every time he put a flagpole piece together, well, he'd, it extended out to me, and pretty soon it got to be like a long, long, long fishing pole, flimsy one with a wolf on it. And I put it in by the you know, stanter in our fitting by my feet, which we hadn't had to establish. And he made the other pole and I put it down there. And so uh, I was, I had to look up and see the end of it. Turn off the poles with the ropes, look like they were in good shape. I mean, it would stand out over the parasol. So I took the um, cover that the uh, Marshall Space Flight Center had made, more like a canvas cover. It was made out of a number of pieces that were adhesively uh, glued together. And so I uh, started hooking them to those two flag poles, started running the flag up the pole. And then I noticed that the poles were coming together. So I looked up and shot out that wad of stuff that was supposed to expand out over the parasol was glued to itself. Oh, no. It was a big wad of material all stuck together in a and so I had to reel it all the way back in. I bloomed out over my head, and I had to unstick all of those pieces that were stuck together in the adhesive, and I had not cured by the time I had gotten to that bag. And so I had to, it was blooming out over my head, and I was unsticking all of those crevices, and finally ran the flag up the pole, and it got out there and covered the, the parasol very well. Then there were two corners on one on either side of me that had to be, uh, I had to float out to the uh, outer edges of the follow telescope out in order to spread the base of the um, unfold sunshade and uh, lay it out over the top of the parasol. So it kept the interior cool and uh, it then come off. Did the job for our mission and also for the A4 day mission of the pilot group. And so um, those were parts of the adventure of being yeah. on the Skyland. 
can't, can't imagine what it must have been like to see that thing glued together. <laughs> that must have been like, whoa, what are we going to do here? I, can't, oh, I think that would have scared me too. if I was outside the spacecraft. Yeah, it was up a billing all over my head, and uh, it was that it was it had to go to every crease and unfold it. So oh it was, was billing all that time, and finally it did get stuck though after it was all done. Why the thing went out there? And it did the job. Uh, kept us cool for a uh, duration. Did not deteriorate. And so uh, uh, it was uh, one of the fixes that Marshall people came up with that worked. Fantastic. So. I was at Kennedy Space Center recently, and they have in the Apollo Center they have a an empty command module service module there, which I then researched and found out that that was supposed to be a rescue command module for you guys in case you couldn't get home. What's the story with that? Were you prepared to come home with five people in a command module? Was was that something you were prepared to do? Yes, we were. In fact, uh, prior to the Skylab flight, uh, one of my Skylab peripheral uh, responsibilities was to ensure that the uh, rescue vehicle was uh, going to be configured properly for us to uh, have a rescue. So the rescue idea was not new. Uh, it was uh, one of those things we had decided on before we left. And uh, I would go to uh, Rockwell out there in California frequently and make sure that the, uh, the rescue configuration was going to work. What well, was that as a result of Apollo 13? They were trying to come up with a contingency in case something like that happened again and they needed to, to bring people home? Or, or was it with the idea of Skylab? Well, the, the idea was uh, was specifically for Skylab. Right. And there was going to be the Apollo time. I was able to take two people out and bring three back or five back. The uh, pilot and the engineer would be in seats one and three. And we put one of the uh, return guys in the center seat, and there was uh, actually a place um, for the uh, other two below seats one and three to be uh, confined or strapped in so that they could uh, rest uh, comfortably under there and had a, a, a semi-couch under there. Yeah. And then we could bring uh, the equipment back and store it in between the two, two of them beneath the three couches up above. So this was all planned before we left, and it was all planned before Skylab uh, got trouble. This was something that was that was a routine uh, part of the configuration for the whole mission prior to prior to launch. Here's a question that I'm probably going to regret asking, but um, we have to ask you about the infamous Skylab shower. Now we know you demonstrated it, and it was filmed and photographed. So. Um, what did your other crewmates think about the shower? I've been told that one of them wouldn't even try it. <laughs> yeah, it seems like uh, I had two showers and uh, some other guy had one and some other guy had none. <laughs> and I don't remember who to report had none, but it wasn't me. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we took the shower up and all the whole Skylight was designed, developed and configured and ready to go when somebody said, hey, what if we need to have a shower? In the new, in the eventual sky, space station, we're going to have to have to have a shower because it's going to be longer flights, so we got to develop one. And so th this was an add-on after the Skylab space station was built, and uh, we had a, a, fix, a circular fixture on the floor, circular fixture on the ceiling, and the head between was a uh, canvas-like cover that was uh, attached to the floor 
And so we had to get in that and raise it to the, the top and hook it around the circle at the top. And so we, had, we were inside of this little sort of beta cloth, the white beta cloth cover. And uh, we had to have some water, but there was no water nearby. So what we did was we uh, had some sort of a, a pressure tank, and we had to fill this uh, three-quart container we had with a mixture of uh, hot and cold water because we're going to have a water report. And we handed out the wall next to the shower and a line that went to a uh, handgun. And so we had a handgun with a flexible hose to spray the water on ourselves and to rinse ourselves off. And uh, we had some special kind of soap. It was, I think it must have been dog soap because when we put it on us, it was stung. It was stumbling with our whole body when we spread it on ourselves. Then we had to rinse it off, so we squirted it off. So we got all those globs of water floating around, and we had water that stick to our arms. Then we had a suction device, and we could suction the water off and then load it in, back into the tank it came from. And it was cold. Warm water didn't do any good. It was just cold inside because water was evaporating at five pounds per square inch, you know, it evaporated quickly and so uh, it was a cold shower and uh, we had to take um, several towels to dry off so it was a real mess and I took two of them and we but we did have the information we needed to pass along to the designers of the showers for the International Space Station and effectively said we have to have hard walls so we can sweep them off and we gave them what we thought was the right kind of design for the hygiene system of the International Space Station, and they actually designed it. And it was uh, in that module that also where the kitchen was, where they did all the eating and so forth. And when they came around with canceling modules on the International Space Station to save money, that's the main module that they eliminated, the one that had all of the, uh, the bathroom facilities and all the eating facilities and all the comforts of home. And so I'm not exactly sure what they're doing with their showers on the you know, International Space Station, but I have seen um, pictures of individual showers and so forth like that and individual safety quarters, but I have not toured this final copy of the space station, but somehow they managed to stay clean and uh, better. But uh, we, we did contribute something to Skylab, but uh, we weren't, they weren't able to... Uh, take along the fixes that we had suggested as a result of what we learned. Okay, so this is a big question, but you and your crew spent 59 days in space, which at the time was a huge uh, long-duration spaceflight record. Uh, your crew cre- completed hundreds of experiments, took thousands of images of Earth and the Sun, yet somehow Skylab is still considered sort of an obscure moment in space history. So what do you think is Skylab's legacy? Well, I think that uh, we learned how to uh, make the International Space Station and um, many of us were involved in the uh, development. I worked with uh, Grumman and uh, two other partners provided um, three configurations for the International Space Station. Actually, uh, I take uh, credit for the and they found the cupola. Maybe somebody else did, but I, I haven't heard of them. The International Space Station was going to have a lot of business. They were going to uh, haul up uh, rockets that had to be assembled. 
not necessarily all in one piece. They were set them up in several several launches and assembled them on orbit. They were going to have uh, uh, some sort of spacecraft also that could fly out to a damaged uh, satellite somewhere of an Earth orbit, pick it up, bring it back. There's going to be a lot of uh, external um, configuration and the traffic coming and going. And what Grubman had to, to do to uh, watch all of that was just cameras placed all over. And uh, the docking was going to be done with cameras inside. And I says, this is, I mean, this is not going to be satisfactory. These cameras don't give you much perspective, much depth perception. Besides that, they fail. And you got to have them pointed in the right direction. This is, looks like to me the traffic facility is going to be like you'd have in an a, a airport, commercial airport. So what you have to have is something that is kind of analogous to a control tower. And so by the time that uh, we are all done with the Grumman design, they had made what it's called a coupon. Wow. And I had, I had suggested that it be something like that, and it like a control tower in an airport, and that's what it turned out to be. So then, of course, uh, they didn't win the contract, but my guess is that NASA and doing all the others, so decided, well, maybe they didn't submit them in the other two contracts, but this is a good idea, so we're going to add it on. <laughs> sure enough, the last thing that was assembled on the International Space Station for the cupola, and a lot of the pictures you see are people up in the cupola looking out the window, or a lot of the you know, Earth and, and Universe pictures that you see are taken out of those windows. So uh, I'm still going to take credit for it. <laughs> I haven't heard yes. anybody challenge me yet, but that's a credit for the for And uh, and of course, um, the purpose of the Skylab space station was to uh, learn what we needed to know to make uh, a long duration flight space station like we have now. Because up till that time, we had been living in capsules, one man, two man, three man capsules, not bigger than the command module or the Apollo program. And uh, so that everybody was uh, involved in everybody else's business of all sorts, eating, sleeping, waste, and so forth. If you're going to have an international space station, you've got to have something better than that. And so the purpose of the Skylab was not only just to see what happens in longer duration missions, but to see how to make something that's bigger than a command module or something you're going to live in mm. for long periods of time with a lot more people. And then that's basically, I think, the major contribution of the Skylab to what we're doing now. And that was uh, one of the desired purposes. I think we achieved that goal. The original objectives of the Skylab was medical aspects of it, the, uh, the solar aspects, and the um, studies of the Earth and resources. But then we had uh, about, I don't know, 60 experiments altogether. We did a lot of other things besides that. And I think what we uh, we accomplished all of our objectives in Skylab and say they're even longer than we had originally intended. But I think that uh, we we did come back with the information from the Skylab that helped us to build the International Space Station. And most of them, our NASA days were working with the uh, space contractors who eventually built the space station as it is. And we're all involved in the design of an impersonal basis. And, uh, all of our reports that came back from the space station were under the view as well in order to make the space station stuff there now. So that was probably our major achievement. 
Was there ever any talk while you were up there of perhaps staying up longer? Because your, your mission was going really well. You were getting a lot done. We tried to stay in Parker. Um, we knew the third flight at that time was also 56 days. There, uh, there was one month and then two, two month flights. So uh, we knew that we could, uh, if we could stay a little longer, we could beat that. And so after we were there for about uh, 45 days, we asked for an extension of about two weeks to our mission so we would beat the Gox guys. Uh, so we were hoping that would happen, but uh, they said, uh, no, you're, you're not going to be able to do that because you're running out of your supplies. You're running out of skimmies and running out of food, and we can't uh, let you stay any longer, but we'll let you stay five, 59 days because you'll be over the right spot in the water. So um, although we tried to stay that long, we couldn't, but we thought we would leave some sort of well. Um, Memories from the next crew, so they would not feel so lonely when they got there. So I found their clothes, their hungaries <laughs> and their shirts and so forth, and um, I stopped them with some little old bags full of junk, I guess, and I put one of them on the uh, bicycle. I put the other one in the lower body negative pressure device. The third one I was not supposed to tell you where I put it. <laughs> but you can imagine when you had a one holer uh, on the wall in the uh, expansion compartment, that might be a good place for one. So when they got there, they had company. They found our, they found their buddies all uh, situated in the sky lab. But when they got there, while they had company, instead of being three guys or six, so that was our joke on the third curb. All right. So this is not Skylab related. But I know that years after uh, Skylab 3, you served as a backup crew member on the Apollo-Soyuz test project. So tell us a little bit about your experiences in the Soviet Union. And, and didn't you commandeer a, a train at one point? Well, you know, I thought I had a good shot in being on one of the last three Apollo missions. And I canceled them. So I thought, well, uh, that's that's not a good thing. <laughs> And um, see what I was thinking at the time was, uh, I guess I was hoping to be uh, after Apollo uh, uh, 13 and so forth, that for Florida space, I was hoping to be assigned to one of those last three missions. I saw my some of my buddies get in Apollo 14, 15, 16, and um, 17. I thought, well, you know, I've got the training and everything I need to know to get on the one of the last three flights. And uh, then they became in question. And they didn't know if they're going to go or not. So I thought, well, maybe I better uh, think about um, getting on a picture flight. And I had heard that there was going to be a flight with the Russians. And it was going to be post-Apollo 17. I wasn't supposed to know about it, but I did. <laughs> and so I thought, well, if Apollo, if I don't get an Apollo 20 or 18 and 19 or 20, it's going to be one Apollo mission that I could possibly still get out. That would be a flight with the Russians. And so uh, I decided that uh, I would prepare myself for that. There was an outfit in Washington that they were teaching you know, languages to uh, people who had to go to uh, foreign embassies. And one of them was Russian. 
So I thought, well, I, I could take a correspondence course in Russian from the Defense Language Institute that was in, in, in Washington. In fact, it was in Maryland, I believe. So that's what I did. Without anybody knowing about it, I ordered a one-year course in the uh, Russian <laughs> language. Wow. It was not a book. It was all just textbook. Like, so I had about 17 textbooks or something like that. I picked the le- wow. a lesson and picked the test and turned it in. Finally, I took the final exam and I passed it. And uh, so there I am uh, sitting with the hopes of getting on this problem of play, but knowing Russian. Well, it turns out then that uh, before the last Apollo flight, I, uh, I found out that Tom Stafford was going to be the commander of the flight with the Russians. So one night at a uh, social event, our wives and other buddies were having dinner at the Charlie Duke's house, I think. I saw, I saw Tom. He was still, he wasn't a general, and he's still easily curled, you know. <laughs> and I went up for him and said, hey, Tom, I understand you're going to they're going to come back and fight with the Russians. I said, how'd you know that? <laughs> I said, probably because a little birdie in Washington told me about it, I guess. He says, yeah. And he said, what about it? By this time, I knew it was going to fly. It was definite. While I was training for Skyline, I was taking his Russian language. I said, well, I'd like to be on your backup crew. And I knew I couldn't be on your crime crew because already, it was already on one. And he said, well, let me think about it. So then what I did was um, I took the final exam on the Russian, and I got the report back, and I passed it. I got a certificate. I went up to see the director of the Johnson Space Center, who uh, then was no longer Chris Kraft, but was Cliff Charlesworth. He said, oh, well, that's interesting. And uh, so it sat like that for a while, and then the, the words came out for the backup crew with um, the Russian mission. I was on it with LB. <laughs> we had yet to fly the uh, Skylab mission. So when we had, were flying, we knew we were going to uh, be on the backup crew to fly the Russians. And uh, in those days, we were not allowed to take photographs over Russia or China. Wow. But we uh, we didn't. But we didn't look uh, over Russia, especially around Baikonur, with renewed interest every time we looked out the window. So, uh, one other kind of interesting little thing happened to me on the SDS-3 flight. And all those days, on that SDS-3, we could take pictures of Russia and China. And we were flying over some place in China on an SDS-3. And it was a beautiful, beautiful blue, like a jewel lake in the middle of a, just a tan, tan, uh, contrasting background of the desert. But see, that's a pretty lake. So I took some pictures of it and forgot about it. But uh, then when I got assigned to the uh, backup crew for the fight with the Russians, we spent three, three visits of Russia, three receipts time. But after that, uh, we, we were also invited after SDS-3, Gordon Fullerton and I, to go over to Russia. I had taken this picture of this lake on the SDS-3. Uh, we were uh, there for three weeks giving uh, lectures to uh, engineers and scientists and others, big audiences. And, and we were showing, you know, some videos that we had. One of those had a picture of this lake. 
and uh, I showed the picture of the lake. And out in the audience, must have been six or seven hundred engineers and scientists out there. I heard just a rumble of, of humorous noise kind of out there. They're all talking to each other. And the, and the interpreter said, next slide, please. And it went through it real quick. And this, this is a picture of a lake I cut and quieted down. I didn't know why that was. So in the evening, we were having a cocktail party. And uh, the interpreter was there. And while I couldn't get him on the side, I didn't want to back like it. And they were watching the scene for spies, you know. I said, you know, I showed the picture of the lake. It was very interesting to the crowd. They started making some some humorous noise and backed out. And he says, why didn't that happen? He looked all around. said, I think that was an atomic test site. I said, whoa. <laughs> so, so we had to have some fun. But we did take some interesting pictures of Derek. Uh, sky level. After Skyline, we take pictures of, of those territories. But we got to speak in uh, language that English or Russian very well. And you know, one time I gave a press conference, they're all in Russian. Well, the first uh, training session, the, the Star City was not equipped for us. So we stayed in a Pinterest hotel in, in, in Moscow. They took us by bus every day out to Star City. We were to work in their training quarters, their classrooms, and so forth. And there were apparently no houses out there. It's big apartment building where the crime crews and their families lived with other engineers. The backup crews had to live out in Moscow. But we would go back and forth uh, once about once a week. We'd get, get on a taxi or a bus or something, go into the embassy, and uh, meet and talk with so many Americans there. You know, watch our movies and so forth and socialize with them, have dinner. And then we would have to uh, have them take us back to Star City uh, after that evening. We were there one evening. I just get kind of bored and decided I'd rather go back back to Star City. There was no uh, ride down there. The ride wasn't going to come for a couple more hours. And so I just went down to the street, hailed a taxi, and asked them to take me to the Yaroslav Slade looks loud. That's the Yaroslav train station. And so I took me there and I got off and I looked uh, for the train for Star City. There, this was a place where all the trains backed up. They didn't go through, they backed up and left. So they backed up to their um, aerial platform, which were probably about 15 platforms all over the road. Trains backed up till. So I looked on the marquee out there for the train to Star City and said, uh, uh, track number to Trent or something like that. So I walked down, there's no train. So I went back to Marti. There was a fella came by, uh, must have been like a businessman. He had a, a suit on, and his tie was down, and his hat on back on his head. And I said, My best Russian, sir, can you tell me where the train is to, you know, Star City? And I am not submitting my best best Russian. And he uh, rattled back so really fast. And I said, Please speak more slowly. He just threw up his hands and went off. <laughs> so the next guy came along was a uh, policeman. Looked like he was going off duty, had his hat back, going open. He was looking at somebody's passport. And I asked him if he could tell me where this train was to Star City. And, and he said, Ah, I'm at a Kotsky Kosmanov. I had my checkered uh, trousers and gold trousers, and I didn't look like a Russian. Sure, he says, 
yeah, I can tell you where the train is to Star City. That's where I'm going to get on the train myself. And it's going to go back to that uh, over there, but it's going to be about 30 minutes. And so let's go back and talk to the people in the control stage. So we did. We went in and talked to the people in the control station. It was kind of amusing. My Russian there. They're, they're Russian. We got along okay. And finally, you see, it's time to go to Star City and to get to the train. I figured we'd go back in one of the coaches, and we didn't. We went up to the headquarters, right in the, the uh, control station with the locomotive. It was an electric train. It was a small cabin. There were two guys in there. So we joined these two guys. He said, I used to be a train, uh, train uh, conductor, and so I don't know what this so we had the conversation while we were waiting there for the people to board. I think the people boarded, and we left the uh, station there in Moscow, headed out to Star City. And pretty soon, this uh, guy uh, who was the policeman had his hands on the controls. And like, there's a go lever, and there's a stop lever. <laughs> and uh, he was saying, well, you to go, this is how you go, and we stop, you stop like this, and we open the door. It was time to go, make sure nobody's in the way. You, Pull this whistle, close the door, and take off. Pretty soon, he's got my hands on the controls, and I'm doing it. And then he takes his hands off, and I'm driving the train to Star City. I must have made about <laughs> six or eight stops, picking up people, blow the whistle, letting them come on. And about just before the stop at Star City, he had to get off where he was going. He said, don't tell anybody. <laughs> so I gave him a patch, and he just said, sayonara. And I took the train on to the next stop and got off of Star City. So that was my tour of, well, that was my chance of driving a train in Star City. Oh, it was a good memory. I really enjoyed it. It was one of the most interesting experiences to be on the backup to a flight with the Russians. And of course, it pulled off very well. We went to Russia three times to train, and they came to the United States three times as well. So we had to know a lot of uh, mixture with their families and with the kids. And now that inning, the kingdom had lunch, entered our hopes as well. So it was a really good experience. I got to know Alexei Leonardo quite well and a good relationship with all of them. I love that story. Thank you so much for sharing it. Before you go, can we get some final thoughts about Skylab? 50 years ago, right now, you're up there uh, orbiting the Earth in that space station. So what are your final thoughts about the station? I think the, the message is that the Skylab space station were crucial to the uh, development of the uh, International Space Station because mm. we went from living in quarters with only three people and doing everything that life required and doing from to a much, much larger, a much more capable space-wise uh, living quarters, working quarters, and how we were going to make it. And I think we were able to contribute something to the design of the International Space Station. And um, I've been watching it with great interest uh, all this time. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Got a pretty noise to it right now. Roger that. You're looking real good. Okay, so... I got a few things I, I, that I wrote down in that. Number one, the humble humble nature of astronauts uh, in relation to their support crew duties um, was was something that really struck me from that very first question. He he said he, he downplayed it so much, and yet 
he's there for some of the key moments in space history and he's got a front row seat and he's actively designing and being part of coming up with the structures and the systems required to do those lunar missions, even though he didn't get to do one himself. I I had no idea he was involved in developing the lunar rover. Yeah. Uh, and he was the first person to drive one out on the earth. I mean, that's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. And yet he's so humble when, when asked, so what did you do before Skylab for NASA? Oh yeah, not much really. Yeah, not just much. Just a bunch of stuff. Like, yeah, a bunch of very important just, exactly. things, you know, including he was the captain for what may have been one of the most terrifying moments in spaceflight. And if you listen to that Absolutely. tape, if you listen to that tape, he really just kept it together. Like he was just like, okay, what do you guys have? What's going on? Like he was very calm. There was no like, oh my God. He was just really calm. He just kept his cool, you know. So, yeah, exactly. Very humble. Very humble. Yeah. Uh, the, the other thing that, that, I mean, there was plenty in that that stood out. There's some great stories in that, which I very much, very much enjoyed. But I loved how he described things and the way how he, he taught me things that I didn't know. For example, I've obviously heard about the micrometeorite shield that, that fell off during the launch of Skylab. But I actually... I never really thought to look up what its job and how it worked. Yeah. Obviously, I knew it was a shield for micrometeorites, but he explained it and how it worked and how it was a, a piece of material that left a gap. So it, and it, it cut down the, um, it slowed down the, the micrometeorite so it didn't then get to the, the spacecraft. I had no idea. Yeah. I had no idea about that. So uh, it, it's little things like that that you pick up. Every time we talk to one, an astronaut, we seem to pick up something I know it's probably really obvious. It's probably something I could look up. But I just didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, and now I do. And I, I like that when we have these kind of conversations. Exactly. Yeah. There's always something new I pick up whenever we talk to one of the astronauts. Another thing that I, I picked up from this conversation, and it made me very sad. I, I almost, I don't know if you, you guys can't see how I feel. But um, when he was talking about, you know, Apollo's 18, 19 and 20, He's like, yeah, I'm going to get a moon mission and they get canceled. He did fly on Skylab and and he had a very successful career. I'm not trying to be gloom and doom and Skylab was awesome. But I just was like, man, that must suck. It made me sad. Like I would have loved to have seen him on the moon or him orbiting the moon. That would have been really cool. Yeah. But at the same time, he's not angry about it. Like he's not holding a grudge about it. No. Like, no, I didn't get to go to the moon. Damn it. You know, he's very much like, but I got to go do other things and. You know, I, I did work a lot on Apollo and, and supporting the moon mission. So there's no attitude like I didn't get to fly to the moon, which I, I really think sums up a lot of the Apollo attitude in general. Like you look at other guys like Dick Gordon. He was a command module pilot and he was supposed to walk on the moon and he didn't. And you look back at him and you would think, man, that guy must have been mad. He must have been angry. Yeah. And he wasn't. He was like, yeah. Stuff happens, man. You know, it is what it is. But to me, that's really like emblematic of about of all, a lot of the Apollo guys is that uh, most of them, I say most of them, most of them like Lausma were very, very humble, very like, yeah, those are the breaks. <laughs> you know, <laughs> those are yeah, the breaks. Yeah, exactly. Jack flew on Skylab and he also did the shuttle, which is also incredible. No offense. You couldn't have 
paid me to do one of the first four shuttle missions. That was risky. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Those, oh, yeah. I mean, those are risky as hell. I mean, Jack was wearing one of those Dave Clark suits with the floaties on it. That's telling you how risky it was. Like, they were prepared yeah. to get out of there if they had to, you know? I mean, he certainly didn't have a career, you know, lacking for excitement. We'll just put it that way. On a personal note, I love I love Jack and his family. His wife, Gracia, is also a sweetheart. She's wonderful, and his kids are awesome, too. He's one of the nicest people you'll ever meet ever in your life. I mean, he's just, yeah, considering yeah. he is such a, I'll just say it, this is kind of a, a cuss word, considering he is one of the biggest badasses ever. I mean, this is a Marine astronaut. He's really one of the nicest, most, I hate this pun, down-to-earth people you'll meet yeah absolutely and and you should never we we shouldn't also downplay how successful that mission was oh, that yeah. skylab mission was which was celebrating either they achieved so much in that in those two months it's often described as perhaps the the most efficient crew ever on any space mission they, they got so much done and and it it's caused problems since because they were so efficient that then other people are, be, are expected to meet the expectations that these guys yeah. lay down from do, uh, achieving what they did maybe we'll come on yeah. to that later next yeah. year earlier next year that is another episode yeah we won't get i won't get into that episode. that's a whole other episode how skylab 3 kind of put skylab 4 in a bad place Kind of, but yeah, we'll talk more about that next year. But yeah, no, exactly. They were very efficient. They got a ton of work done. All those Skylab missions really rewrote the book on like solar physics textbooks because before Skylab, I'm this is uh, I'm getting a little off topic. Before Skylab, they had solar observatories in space, right? But they didn't really send back pictures. They sent back computer images of the sun. When I say computer images, they were very, like, rudimentary. They weren't, like, you know, images we see now. We'll just put it that way. Whereas Skylab provided pictures in real time um, on a television screen, which they had to take a Polaroid of it because, you know, they didn't have digital photography back then as as it is now. That was a big deal at the time. And it, it had the advantage of having people being able to look at it and analyze it in real time, which was is something that hadn't been done before it's just incredible you know the amount of stuff they were able to do on there and uh, blows my mind that skylab is still kind of underestimated because it just did so freaking much it really did i mean these guys were just working their butts off and bringing and they brought back tons of stuff there's so much of it i don't know if they've analyzed all of it because they brought back tons of you know medical earth uh solar Mm -hmm. data they brought back a lot of stuff yeah, they kind of set up the third crew, but we'll get into that on a later date. And of course, you can hear the full unedited interview over on our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash space and things. And there is a lot more of this week's episode. We were talking to Jack for an hour and 15 minutes. So there's a, a couple of bonus questions. I'll definitely post one as a separate link within Patreon. But the full video if you want to watch all of it is also going to be there for you so head over to patreon.com forward slash space and things to be a part of that it's also worth noting that jack is sometimes the astronaut of the day at kennedy space center so if you're planning a trip to florida check out the kennedy space center website to see if you could meet jack in person i'll put a link to that page in our show notes 
you can find these show notes at spacingthingspodcast.com, where there is also an extensive archive of all our previous episodes and their show notes. Or you can see the link in your podcast provider underneath this episode. If you got a minute, I think we owe you a report on strawberries and pork loin. So, Emily... What caught your eye in spaceflight since last week? Yes, a couple things. Uh, first, uh, we want to pay at Space and Things. We would like to send our condolences uh, to the family, friends, and colleagues of former astronaut, NASA astronaut, Bo Bobco, Carol Bo Bobco, who passed away last week at the age of 85. He joined NASA as part of its astronaut group seven in 1969. They were the astronauts that, were brought over from the uh, former manned orbiting laboratory program, which had been canceled that same year. And he went on, he did not fly during the 70s, but he went on to uh, fly an analog, well, not really fly, but uh, be in an analog Skylab mission, uh, SMEET, the Skylab Medical Experiment Altitude Test in 1972, which was a 56-day ground mission. He also flew Three space shuttle missions, starting with STS-6 in 1983, which was Challenger's first mission. He was the first astronaut, I believe, to fly three different shuttles, which were uh, Challenger, Atlantis, and Discovery. And he also supported the approach and landing tests of Enterprise in 1977. So he had a huge career. Uh, When he left NASA, he entered private industry, as many uh, astronauts do. And he also worked at NASA Ames for some time. So, again, uh, we want to send our deepest condolences to Bob Coe's uh, friends, family, colleagues. He was a wonderful guy, very modest, very funny. So uh, we would like to send that out to people who knew him. Also, just a very short notice that Crew 7 aboard SpaceX's uh, Crew Dragon spacecraft will launch this, uh, I believe, this week on August 26th. It is scheduled for August 26th. So if you want to see it, go check out your uh, launch tracker uh these times can slip because it's launching from florida and uh we're having we have some sporty weather in florida at this time of year so who knows <laughs> if it's gonna slip or not but uh just keep an eye on that but that is due to launch this week from uh i should say not cape canaveral kennedy space center so just check that out if you can so dave uh what have you been looking at this week just want to re- reiterate what you said there about carol bob Coe. he Here's someone that we have mentioned in this podcast numerous times when we've spoken about various things. So uh, a real big player in space history, especially on the American side, side with this, the Smeet mission. We've, we've we talked had a whole episode devoted yes. to that. Um, in fact, we I'm fairly sure we mentioned him literally two episodes, two or three episodes ago when we were talking about alternative Gemini programs. You know, he, he was at the heart, similar to what we talked about with, after the Jack interview, uh, today's interview, you know, those those early astronauts who weren't part of the Apollo program who were still there in the 60s were so integral to so many things. Uh, and you can't ever underplay what they were part of in those early days as well as what they went on to achieve during the shuttle days. So, yeah, uh, that is sad news. Um, interesting... We talked last week about how Russia potentially had a big week coming up. Yes. And it was a shame to see that uh, Luna, Luna 25 crashed into the moon. What I found interesting was how much news coverage that the disaster achieved in the UK. Oh, I really? Mean, it was front page, 
front page of uh, of all the, the news apps. Uh, there, were, there were billboard news billboards in in the town that had the headline up. Um, I think obviously that's partly to do with the politics of, of today's world. I think people want to see Russia foul at things, which therefore it becomes a news story. Um, there's probably a lot to say about this, yeah. but we don't have time today. But that's a real shame. However, uh, we're recording this on Tuesday the 22nd. Wednesday the 23rd, uh, the Indians are hopefully going to land yes. on the moon. So um, by the time this podcast is out, we'll know if that's been successful. And hopefully the Indian will have a successful land on the moon because that would be really great yes. to see if that can yeah, happen. Yeah, my fingers are crossed that that's going to happen for them. That would be wonderful. I'll be jumping up and down for them because, you know, we always think, oh, well, we landed people on the moon. Or I should say the Americans, we landed people on the moon. That's, you know, in the 60s and 70s. and it's not as easy as it looks. I mean, if it was easy, yeah. every mission would have been a success. You know what I'm saying? It, it's still hard to land on the moon. Yeah, we'll become the only the fourth nation yeah. to have done it behind America, Russia, and China. So, or the Soviet Union and China, rather. So, it's proven to not be easy. So, hopefully, fingers crossed that they managed to do it because, uh, you know, the, with these things, the the more nations that are, are achieving things within spaceflight, the better, in my I opinion. I totally get it. Yep. I agree totally. Editor Dave here. Now you can all imagine Emily jumping up and down because the Indian spacecraft did in fact land successfully on the moon. You know what time it is. It's the time in the podcast where I try and persuade you to head over to patreon.com forward slash space and things and sign up. Don't forget that we will stop this podcast after show 200, unless we get to 100 patron subscribers by that point. So please consider heading over there right now. And thank you to all who have done so already. Yeah, please consider joining. You know, I hate to sound like a broken record, but we'd really like to continue past 200 shows. That would be awesome. So thank you to Courtney Green, who this week signed up. And thanks to all of you who just for listening. We know that not everybody can sign up for Patreon, but we do hope that you're enjoying what we do either way. And if you want to help out, please press the share button. But don't forget, in space, no one can hear you meet.